This weekend will be the final full weekend of non-conference play in the Big East. And they saved the best for last, it seems, as there are a lot of huge matchups. Of course, the renewal of the old Big East most prolific rivalry, Syracuse at Georgetown. And then, of course, Big East squads are taking on the best of the best as Marquette hosts number four UCLA. And then on Sunday, number six Villanova will head to Waco to take on number two Baylor, who, if Baylor wins, could be the next number one team in the country. And then, of course, you have 15th-ranked UConn competing in Newark at the Never Forget Tribute Classic against a very good St. Bonaventure team. And then, of course, speaking of rivalries, Sunday night in Newark, the Garden State Harbor Classic returns as 23rd-ranked Seton Hall hosts Rutgers. I'll preview that and, of course, recap what happened over the past few days, which you're going to hear a lot about Seton Hall later on and, of course, the rest of the Big East as the conference continues to succeed in this year's edition of the Big East Big 12 battle. I'll recap all of that and all the action that you might have missed over the last few days here on this brand-new episode of the Igloo. So, y'all, the Big East, after the past few days, now has a 5-3 advantage in the Big East Big 12 battle. So that guarantees them at least a split for the third consecutive year. In the first annual battle in 2019-20, the Big East won it 8-2. Last year, only 6 of the 10 games were played, and it was a 3-3 split. And as mentioned before, it's now 5-3 in favor of the Big East. I'll touch on that in just a moment. But starting with Tuesday night, you know, before I get into the juicy stuff, you know, I want to give you at least an appetizer. So Providence looked really good early against a solid Vermont squad at the dunk, leading 30-20 to at the break. And, you know, they really dominated most of the first half and really most of the game in general, Vermont never led, and Providence led by as many as 16. So Providence, 9-1 and one now, after beating Vermont 68-58, to 58, and you need a big game from Nate Watson, you got it from him. 24 points on 10 of 12 shooting, and the crazy thing is, you know, they didn't get a single point out of Noah Horkler, although he did grab 10 rebounds, which was a team high, while dishing out four assists. Again, still no Jared Bynum. Allen Breed starting in his place. Eight points on three of eight shooting. Although he, again, was in foul trouble, so he's limited to 24 minutes. A.J. Reeves, also with 24 points. You need him to step up, and he did. 33 minutes, six of 10 from three, and eight for 12 from the floor. Al Durham, nine points, five assists in 37 minutes, although he didn't really shoot well at two for nine. And the bench was really limited. Manaya only with two points and five rebounds. Ed Croswell, one point with six rebounds. As for Vermont, they really didn't get much outside of Ben Shungu and Ryan Davis. Shungu had 20, Davis had 19. Shungu took 18 shots, made eight of them, and was two for five from three. 
They also got nine from Isaiah Powell, the senior from Albany, nine points, eight boards, but not only only ten points from the rest of the Catamounts. Not a bad shooting night, 43%, but just 26% from three. Providence was 46% from the floor and an even 30% from three. But, you know, Providence being 9-1 and one at this point, they've definitely exceeded expectations, and they look like a top-five team in the conference right now. Speaking of teams that have looked really solid in the early goings, DePaul is now 7-1 after beating Duquesne 87-67. to And like usual, they started off slow. It was 36-30 at the break. And DePaul really... Well, Duquesne was really, you know, back and forth a lot of the first half. But once DePaul took a 25-23 lead... On a Philmon Geber with three, with 3.46 left in the half, in the first half, that is, DePaul would not trail again. Although Duquesne did cut it down to one point early in the second half, but really DePaul kept him at arm's length throughout the rest of the second half to win by 20, so a convincing win. And Javon Freeman Liberty, after a rough night against Loyola, Really came to play in this game. 35 minutes, 26 points, 9 boards, and 5 assists. 11 for 17 from the floor, and DePaul's team really shot it well at 53%, and, and they were 47.6% from deep. Three other DePaul starters were in double figures. Brandon Johnson with 13. Same with Nick Ongenda, and they got 11 from Phil Mongeberwit to go with 4 boards and 4 assists. David Jones had 7 points. So, a vast majority of the scoring came from that starting five. And they got 17 points from the bench, whereas Duquesne got 16. And 11 of those points were from Jackie Johnson the third, and, and then they got five from Tyson Acuff. The leading scorer for the Dukes in this game, though, with 17 points to go with 10 rebounds was Trey Williams. They got 12 from Kevin Easley and 13 from Leon Ayers III. Duquesne down to 3-7. and seven. DePaul now 7-1. and one. Again, all eight of those games came at home, but to go 7-1, and one, definitely exceeding expectations, and they will go on a three-game road trip to round out their non-conference schedule. But now shifting gears to the battle. In a game where I gave Butler basically no shot to win. The Bulldogs go into Norman. And it looked like Oklahoma was going to run away with this thing. They were up double digits at the break. And after Oklahoma took a 12-11 lead with 12.46 left in the first half, they would hold on to that lead until Butler tied it. Actually took a took a one-point lead with 240 to go in regulation. So they led for over 30 minutes before Butler reclaimed the lead. And again, it was a bonkers game. 
It looked like Butler, you know, you know, had the game locked up. You know, it was 52-49 Butler after Chuck Harris made a jumper. And Jordan Goldwire got an got a bucket and a foul to get it down to one, but Oklahoma missed the free throw. And Butler got the rebound. Lucius made Lukosius made two free throws to make it a three-point game, and Butler opted not to foul up three with Oklahoma in the bonus, and that, for a moment, came back to bite Butler as Elijah Harkless knocked down a three to tie the game at 54 to send it into overtime. And the funny thing is, Butler was up 62-58 after a Jordan Goldwire three with a minute 38 to go. But Butler, thanks to clutch play, DJ Hughes coming up big with a tip-in, and then Chuck Harris with a three to give Butler the lead, and that turned out to be for good. Butler going into Norman and stunning Oklahoma, 66-62 in overtime. Chuck Harris came off the bench and dropped 26 points. 10 of 21 from the field, 4 for 7 from 3. The only other Bulldog in double figures, shockingly, was Bryce Golden. 10 points and 7 boards. But in terms of the players, they came up big. Seamus Lukosius. 7.6 boards. And his free throw shooting could not have been better in crunch time as he went 4 for 4 from the free throw line. Aaron Thompson knocked down the one free throw that put the game out of reach in the final seconds of overtime. He played 43 minutes, 7 points, 4 boards, 3 assists. But without the contributions of DJ Hughes, the freshman, I don't think Butler wins this game. He had barely played this year. He only played 42 combined minutes in his first four appearances. But against Oklahoma, 23 minutes off the bench and scored six points while grabbing six rebounds. And as I mentioned, he did have that huge tip in. And Christian David came up with four crucial points as well in 22 minutes while grabbing five rebounds. As for Oklahoma, the aforementioned Elijah Harkless led them with 16 points. They got 10 each from Tanner Groves and Jordan Goldwire. You know, 8 from Umoja Gibson, 5 points from Jalen Hill. And then from the bench, they got six from C.J. Noland, five from Jacob Groves, only two from Ethan Chargois. So Butler, don't count them out just yet. A big win for the Dogs going into Norman. They're now 6-3 and three on the season after that dub. Tuesday night in a game that started well after 10 o'clock because of the Texas Tech-Tennessee game going into overtime. Villanova, after a rough start in which they started 5-for-28 from three, excuse me, from three-point range at the half, they turn it on the second half and really put Syracuse in the dust, winning by a score of 67-53. to And to think that Villanova, again, they took 53s in this game, 50, and only made 13 of them. 
to think that they still won this game by double digits despite a rough shooting night. That just goes to show how dangerous Villanova can be. Because just imagine if they were hitting more of those threes. Would have been night-night earlier for SU. The funny thing is, Villanova only took six free throws. They made four of them, and not to mention, they grabbed 27 offensive rebounds. 27. And grabbed 57 rebounds as a whole. And it was a balanced effort for the Cats. 18 from Justin Moore. 14 from Colin Gillespie to go with five assists. 13 from Jermaine Samuels to go with nine rebounds. They got four points each from Eric Dixon and Brandon Slater. But 11 huge points off the bench from Caleb Daniels in 17 minutes. As for Syracuse, it was Jimmy Bayheim Jr. leading the way with 21 on 10 of 19 shooting. 11 from Joe Girard III. 10 from Jesse Edwards and Buddy Bayheim. He stunk in this game. 0 for 5 from 3, just 3 for 15 from the floor to finish with only 6 points in 38 minutes. And for Cole Swider going up against his former team, he was talking a lot in the early goings after making his first 3-point attempt of the game. He did grab 12 rebounds, but after that initial 3, he was quiet. 2 for 7 from the floor and just 1 for 3 from 3 finished with only 5 points. So bragging rights, give it to Villanova, winning big at the Jimmy V Classic in the Garden. Now on Wednesday, Xavier obliterated Ball State 96-50. And the funny thing is, Ball State really started in control. Up, you know, they scored seven of the first nine points of the game. But Xavier roared back and... If I do the math right, they closed the game on a 94-43 run. That's incredible. And leading the way, I think this is the real welcome back for Zach Fremantle. Coming off the bench, played 20 minutes, and scored 24 points while grabbing 7 rebounds and dishing out 4 assists. 9 for 11 from the field as well in, again, just 20 minutes. Colby Jones with 14 points, 8 boards, and 5 assists in 23 minutes. 6 of 9 from the field, 2 for 3 from 3. Nate Johnson also had 14 points, 4 for 7 from distance, and 5 of 9 from the field. Jerome Hunter only had 7. Same with Paul Scruggs, but he did grab 9 rebounds and dished out 2 assists. So they got 42 points from the starters. 54 from the bench, as I mentioned, 24 from Fremantle, 4 from Cesar Edwards, 6 from Ben Stanley, 9 from Jack Nunji, 7 from Dwan Odom, and it was a really well-balanced game for him. 5 rebounds and 6 assists as well, and Adam Kunkel, you know, only had 4 points, but again, Xavier really dominated, 51-26 on the glass as well, 53% from the field, 48% from 3 and they held Ball State to under 30% from the floor, just 22% from three. For the Cardinals, leading the way for them, 10 each from Luke Bumbleo and Tyler Cochran. And then off the bench, Jalen Winden with eight. And by the way, you know, that's the same Jalen Windham who started his college career at Creighton in 2019-20. 
So a big win for Xavier. They are now 8-1 ahead of their big inner-city rivalry game Saturday night. UConn in their first game, now without Adama Sonogo, they were already without Tyrese Martin, which was tough enough. But now having to go into Morgantown without those two guys, this was a ball game between two former Big East foes. In times where it looked like West Virginia looked like they were on the path to pull away, UConn had answers. But the second UConn, you know, had the lead at end point, you know, West Virginia answered right back. And in the end, it was West Virginia prevailing barely, 56-53, in an absolute rock fight in Morgantown. And it was Taz Sherman, as expected, leading the way for the Mountaineers. 23 points, 6 rebounds, and 3 assists. 8 of 17 from the field, 3 for 6 from 3. Sean McNeil also played all 40 minutes. He was questionable going into that game, but ended up playing. 16 points, 3 rebounds, 2 of 7 from 3, 5 for 12 from the floor. And West Virginia won this game despite shooting just 12 for 27 from the free throw line. That's 44%. And then they really didn't get much from any of the other starters. And then off the bench, six points from Gabe Osabuian. And then a familiar face of Big East fans, Pauly Polycap, the DePaul transfer. 19 minutes and five points to go along with three rebounds. As for UConn, the wrench, Isaiah Whaley, 15 points, three boards, seven of ten from the field. They got 14 from RJ Cole to go with six boards and three assists. But he really struggled shooting the ball. 6 of 17 from the field, just 2 of 8 from 3. And UConn really struggled shooting the 3 balls. They were just 3 for 21. They also got 10 from Andre Jackson. He made his only 3-point attempt and was 4 for 5 from the field to go with 5 rebounds. Akuk Akuk and and Jordan Hawkins only scored 2 points each. Akuk had 10 rebounds, though. Uh, Then off the bench, they got 6 from Jalen Gaffney to go with 3 assists. Only four points from Tyler Polly, although he was just one for six from the field. So UConn, 15th ranked team in the country, a tough pill to swallow as they fall in Morgantown to eight and two. Meanwhile, Georgetown put on an offensive clinic against UMBC, winning 100 to 71. And the guy who was leading the way, Caden Rice. 34 points for him, three boards, three assists, but here's the kicker. 11 for 14 from the field and 10 for 12 from three. The rest of his team, three for 11 from three. But in terms of breakout performances also, how about Ryan Matumbo off the bench? 18 minutes, seven for 15 from the field, 15 points and 11 rebounds as he got the majority of the minutes at center over Malcolm Wilson who started and only scored four points in 13 minutes. Dante Harris and Aminu Muhammad each with 13. Harris with six boards and seven assists. Muhammad with 10 rebounds and three assists. And both of those guys were five for 10 from the floor and one for two from three. Other notable contributions from Georgetown's bench, Jordan Riley with seven. They got five from Colin Holloway, four from Jalen Billingsley, As for UMBC, 
They were led by 17. From LJ Owens. They got 11 from Rogers. Eight each from Kennedy. And I don't know what the hell is going on as I'm trying to, you know, get the box score here. And it's just really just spazzing out on me. Um, Now, I'm just going to go without it. Screw it. I mean, Georgetown, you know, this is a good win for them to get back to 500. And you need an offensive outburst like that to really get the wheels going. They were 50% from the floor and 56.5% from three. And they out-rebound. They, they doubled up UMBC on the glass, out-rebounding them 61-30. to But shifting gears back to the battle, Marquette visiting Kansas State. And for the third time in four years, Marquette beats Kansas State and for the second consecutive time in the Little Apple. Cam Jones with 15 points to lead the way. They got 14 from Justin Lewis on to go along with nine boards and five assists. Tyler Kolick didn't score. It was 0 for 7, but he did, you know, contribute in other ways. Eight boards and seven assists. Only eight points from Daryl Morcel and eight from Kirk Queff, which is, you know, scoring-wise a lot better than what he had been contributing. They also got eight from Greg Elliott off the bench, so Elliott really providing a good spark for them. As for K-State, they were led by 17 from Mark Smith, 16 from Ishmael Masood, 11 from Marquise Noel, and off the bench, they got nine from Davion Bradford, and credit Marquette, they really limited Mike McGurl, a guy who... You know, you could naturally be worried about going off. He only had six points. And credit Marquette's defense. They held K-State to just 24% from three and under 40% from the field. So Marquette definitely overachieving. They're now 8-2 and two after that big win in Manhattan. But who had the biggest win of the week? Easily belongs to number 23, Seton Hall, in terms of the Big East. Hosting 7th-ranked Texas, they started off well. Texas, you know, made their run and led by as many as five points. But Seton Hall went on a run to tie it at 37 at the break, as it was Alexis Yetna who tied it with a three, Going into the locker room, you know, Texas, it looked like there were points where it looked like they were going to pull away, but to Seton Hall's credit, they did not give up. And thanks to some timely plays from Bryce Aiken, including a dagger three with less than a minute to go, the Pirates pick up their second top 10 win of the year, 64 to 60. Jared Roden led the way with 18 points. Not a great shooting night as he was just 7 for 18 from the floor. Alexis Yetna, though, a big night for him. Not really a big night, but the fact that you get a double-double out of him, that's big news. 12 points, 11 rebounds in 34 minutes. However, Seton Hall's win came at a cost as Iko Biagu 
stepped on another on a Texas player's shoe as he was coming down and he had to leave the game and only played five minutes and was seen in a boot after the game, which really sucks. You know, Seton Hall really needs his interior presence blocking shots to help make them successful. Well, even more successful, I should say. Because, you know, they still won this game despite not having Obiagu for the last 35 minutes or so. Miles Kale came up with some big plays. 10 points, 5 boards, 4 for 8 from the field, 2 for 5 from 3, and was really great on the defensive end to stifle, you know, some really good guards on Texas in the form of Courtney Ramey and Marcus Carr. Bryce Aiken, as I mentioned, didn't really shoot the ball well, but, you know, he made the plays that he needed to down the stretch. He started off 0 for 7 from 3, but he hit that dagger 3, and that made all the difference. 10 points, 2 boards, 3 assists, 3 for 12 from the floor. Again, not a great shooting night, but he did make the plays that he needed to when it mattered most. Tyree Samuel getting most of the minutes in place of the injured Obiagu. 7 points, 11 rebounds. It was 3 for 4 from the field. However, did struggle from the free throw line at just 1 for 5. And the funny thing is, you know, they won this game despite, you know, Trey Jackson and Jameer Harris being MIA. Neither of them scored in 11 minutes and was 0 for 3 from the field combined. As for Texas, it was the bigs who had their way. Trey Mitchell with 19 points and 11 rebounds. Timmy Allen, 17 and 12. They got only 10 from Marcus Carr, just 9 from Courtney Ramey. Three from Jace Febris, all from the free throw line, and just two points from Andrew Jones. You know, Texas really didn't get a lot of minutes from the bench other than Jones. As you know, they only got six minutes each from Brock Cunningham and Devin Askew, and only four minutes from the Creighton transfer Christian Bishop. And credit Seton Hall, you know, great three-point defense. Holding the Longhorns to just one for 13 from three. You know, maybe it was an off shooting night as well, but you got to give credit where credit's due to Seton Hall's defense as well, as they're statistically one of the best three point defenses now in the country. So, in a rock fight, Seton Hall with another signature win, beating Texas at home in the Big East Big 12 battle to give the Big East a 5 3 advantage. St. John's hosting Monmouth. Again, Monmouth was on. I, I put St. John's on upset alert. Monmouth definitely had the capabilities to win this game. And St. John's led for the majority of the a vast majority of this game, but Monmouth, to their credit, they did not go away. And it looked like St. John's is on the fringe of disaster, but because of Pasha Alexander making timely defensive plays and just plays all around, St. John's escapes Karnaseka with an 88-83 win. And again, it was Alexander leading the way. 21 points, 7 of 14 from the field. But the defensive play he made on a missed free throw where it looked like it was going to go out of bounds off St. John's. Alexander makes this big play where it looks like he's diving 
where, where he dove to keep the ball in bounds and smartly knocked it off a Monmouth player while he was stepping on the end line to give the ball back to the Red Storm. Those are winning plays. And that's what St. John's needed. Also, you know, before I move on, can I just say the officiating debacle in Newark was absolutely egregious. Really, ten took 10 minutes to make sure that the foul count was correct. 10 minutes? Was it really worth it? Like, come on. And, and no surprise, it was James Breeding that was the head official on there. He's a pariah to all Big East fans, like, period. So, I'm hoping that he's limited to, you know, a number of Big East games and hope, I mean, in a perfect world, he would never do another Big East game again. But if that number goes down, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with it. You just can't have that stuff happen in a game of that magnitude, especially with under four minutes to go in a crunch time. In crunch time, in a game where, again, it's a any team could pull it out. Anyways, back to St. John's. They got 16 from Julian Champagny, four boards, five assists, didn't really shoot the ball well, six for 16 from the floor, two for six for three. Montez Mathis, 14, six, and five for him, five for 10 from the floor. Dylan Adaiwusu, also a solid night. 11 points, 6 boards, 7 assists on 4 of 8 shooting. They got 13 off the bench from Steph Smith in just 12 minutes. 3 for 4 from 3, 5 for 8 from the floor. 6 from Omar Stanley, 4 from Joel Soriano, and 2 from Rafael Pinzon. So, you know, they got 25 combined points from the bench. As for Monmouth, a familiar face to St. John's fans, although just the mention of him will make their blood boil. Shavar Reynolds went off in this game. 25 points. 10 for 18 from the floor, including 5 of 8 from 3. To lead the way for the Hawks in a losing effort. They got 14 from Marcus McClary. 13 from Walker Miller. Only 11 from their leading scorer, George Pappas. And Mammoth, you know, outside of Reynolds, really struggled shooting the three balls. The other players was four were four for seventeen from three, and they actually out rebounded St. John's forty three thirty six. They also got thirteen off the bench from Miles Foster in eighteen minutes to go with eight boards and was six of eight shooting. But outside of really those five guys, not really much. But and again, it wasn't pretty. But St. John's pulls it out. 88-83 to get to 7-2. and two. So we're going to turn the page now. Again, it's going to be a big weekend in the Big East, and there's no bigger game than Sunday afternoon in Waco, 3 o'clock on ABC. Top 10 showdown between 6th-ranked Villanova and 2nd-ranked Baylor. And joining me to preview that game is Eugene Rapay. I had him on the Big East Roundtable for the first annual edition of that back um, in 2020, right around Thanksgiving, and it's going to be really good to get him back on the Igloo to preview a marquee matchup and a Sweet 16 rematch going down as part of the Big East Big 12 battle. So don't go anywhere. That preview is coming up next here on the Igloo.
a top 10 showdown in Waco as part of the Big East Big 12 battle. And it's six-ranked Villanova taking on number two Baylor in a rematch of last year's Sweet 16. And for Villanova, if they win this game, the Big East will win the Big East Big 12 battle outright. But I know the defending national champions are going to have something to say about that. And joining me to preview this game, manager and editor from VUHoops.com and one of the panelists representing Nova um, as part of the first annual Big East Roundtable a year ago. Uh, welcome back to the Igloo, Eugene Rapay. Eugene, dude, really good to get you back on here. Yeah, Tim, uh, long time no see. I know we ran into each other at Big East Media Day, which was awesome to meet you in person and glad to be back on the show. I mean, so this game, first, before we get to the game, we obviously got to talk about what happened with Villanova earlier in the week. Uh, Madison Square Garden, speaking of, uh, taking on a good old rival in Syracuse in the Cole Swider Bowl, if you will. Uh, <laughs> Villanova, you know, really, I mean, both teams started hot, but, that, you know, both teams really fizzled out. And at halftime, it was Syracuse leading by three. Villanova was only five for 28 from three in the first half. Uh, but, you know, Villanova did what Villanova does best. They really hunkered down and dominated Cuse in the second half. You know, what were the major changes that you saw in Villanova that allowed him to leave the Garden with a double-digit win over the Cuse? Yeah, one thing that I noticed, especially in the second half, I felt that Villanova felt a little more comfortable going against Syracuse's zone in the first half. While they were able to get good looks, they just couldn't knock them down, and it seemed like Syracuse's the way that they were guarding the perimeter or the way that they get movement to the ball was was getting to them a little bit. In the second half, they just kind of bared down. They still were able to generate those good shots. The good thing was that they were able to knock them down a little bit more than they did in the first. But most importantly, the rebounding. The rebounding was insane. They had more rebounds than three-point shots attempted, which I don't know you would ever hear that in a Jay Wright three-point shoot them up sleep in the streets team. They had 57 boards overall, 53-point shots attempted. So I think that was probably the biggest key that helped them win in the second half. And not to mention, I mean, 27 offensive yeah. rebounds. I mean, I, I don't want – I think it's more on Villanova just knowing what the game plan is. Like, we got to dominate the glass over Syracuse just not being a good rebounding team, which it's some attribution to that. Uh, but, you know, overall, I mean, defensively, I mean – I feel like that's something we got to talk about because, I mean, you know, SU, they got some snipers out there, but uh, hold Buddy Beheim to 0 for 5 from 3 and 3 for 12 from the – 3 for 15 uh, from the floor. I mean, that's a commendable Jay Wright, you know, led defensive effort. Yeah, overall, the, the defense was pretty good. The job on Buddy was definitely terrific. Jimmy Beheim, credits to him, though. He, he had a game-high 21 points. He was able to get going, knock down some tough mid-range Jays. But other than that – Joe Girard, you saw him give Nova some fits in the first half. He didn't do much in the second. So Villanova's defense was still good while maintaining that great effort on the glass. So that was probably the two big things that helped them out in the second half. Once the shots got going, then you knew that they were going to pull away. So going into this game, I mean, this the fact that, you know, this is now the third top 10 team that Villanova's facing this season. They already played at UCLA who's currently number four they played Purdue who was number one this week but will you know fall out after losing at Rutgers earlier in the week um, and then now they go to now number two Baylor uh, I mean you could argue you know that's the most difficult non-conference schedule arguably of anyone in the country with Gonzaga and maybe Seton Hall would have something to say about that I mean but top five 
toughest non-con schedules in the country. Uh, so do you think that having those previous tough tests, you know, is going to give them, you know, potentially an advantage here going up against this really good Baylor squad? It will definitely help, especially I know the Syracuse game, that wasn't a top 10 ranked opponent, but that was a hostile crowd. I was a little surprised to see that it was probably a 70 to 30 split Syracuse fans at MSG packing it in versus Nova fans. But to speak to your point about the other top 10 ranked opponents, that'll definitely help. And I think that's something that a lot of Nova fans are, are very curious to see those last top 10 ranked games against UCLA and Purdue. They're right there. Nova had it in the bag, didn't hang on. And now I'm curious to see how does this team respond this time around against Baylor, a team that they've seen before, but also can they close it out this time? How has this team grown since those early November matchups? So, and I think this, you know, again, like I said before, this is a sweet 16 rematch and keep in mind, no Colin Gillespie in that game because of that um, knee injury just a few weeks prior. So do you think Colin's really itching to, you know, get out there and show, you know, Hey, I could have made a major difference had I been out there back in March and hell, I could have, you know, really given that squad a shot at, you know, preventing Baylor from eventually going on to win the Natty last year. Yeah. He, he probably won't say it, but I know he's probably feeling it. A lot of fans definitely felt it after watching the way that the NCAA tournament played out, especially when you saw that Baylor Gonzaga national championship game and just the way that Baylor just steamrolled Gonzaga, who would have thought going into that Nova sweet 16 game against Baylor, I think the expectations weren't very high at all. I think everyone expected Baylor to steamroll Nova. I know I personally did, but then when you saw the game unfold and you see Nova's just mucking it up a little bit, they were hanging in there just a couple baskets away from the bears before the bears finally went on that run. You sat there thinking, man, if, Demir Cosby Roundtree was healthy. If Con Gillespie was healthy, is this a different game? We'll never know, but at least we'll have this matchup on Sunday to look forward to, to see what difference does Colin Gillespie make and can he finally make his mark against the Bears? So with this Baylor squad, I mean, this is objectively a very different team, although more of the guys who were quote-unquote role players a year ago are in a more prominent role, uh, but yet they're still undefeated. They're ranked second in the country. And if they stay undefeated after Sunday, they'll most likely move into the number one spot. Uh, but, you know, to you looking at them, what makes this Baylor team stand out, make them as good as they are? Yeah, it, to me, it's it's funny because I know a lot of people are looking at this and the Nova side as revenge narrative. But like you said, Tim, a lot of the key guys aren't there anymore. But despite that, a lot of the new faces or the guys who were role players last year, they're really stepping it up, and they've reloaded. The most impressive thing about this Baylor team is definitely their defense. Scary stuff. The, the, you know They haven't missed a beat despite plugging new guys in and new places. They're still one of the top defensive teams in the country. They still generate turnovers like it's their job. The length is insane from guys with <clears> – <throat> sorry, excuse me um, – from guys with seven-foot long wingspans to lengthy guards that will just jam up passing lanes and things like that it's going to start there on the defensive end and for nova good luck because you look on you look at the numbers it's scary stuff what baylor has produced they're undefeated they're one of the top teams in the country for a reason but uh yeah nova's going to have its work cut out for them that defense though if they if the wildcats can break it down then 
that would be a great testament to the Cats growth throughout this young season. But yeah, that Baylor defense is definitely where it all starts. So in order to, you know, break down that Baylor defense, obviously it's easier said than done, but if there's any team that has that much, you know, ammunition offensively, it's Villanova that is capable of doing it. So, you know, I mean, is it going to have to be, you know, I'm assuming it's going to be by committee, uh, you know, guys being able to step up, knock down three point shots and, you know, eventually open up the lane for penetration and all that uh, to really stifle that Baylor defense. But again, like I said, easier said than done against, you know, a team that really just packs it and makes it so hard to score. Oh yeah. Without a doubt for Nova, it's going to be another all hands on deck type of effort. I don't really think that there's a single guy you can, highlight or look to, to to carry the team to victory here granted of course you know night in night out it's always a different guy leading the way but overall it's going to have to be multiple guys stepping up on all facets of the game from knocking down those three-point shots when they get them when and if you can get them to making sure you take care of the ball and not turn it over and give Baylor those extra possessions or extra shots and then defensively the way that they can handle a lot of their top scores a lot of their weapons they're scary stuff. I mean, the, the most impressive thing to me is that their top scorer, LJ Cryer, is actually their sixth man. <laughs> Insane. You don't really see that too often. And, of course, James Akinjo, welcome back. Long time no see, old friend. But uh, there's going to be a lot to handle here with this Baylor team. So, I mean, you mentioned a couple of those names. Um, are there any others, you know, you're looking at? Because I know, you know, you get Mayer back. You get uh, Flo Thamba you know, among others and Flagler's back as well. I mean, you know, he's still a lot of guys from that championship team that make that team so dangerous, but you know, are there any specific guys that, you know, you kind of like, you know, got a circle on the scouting report? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, between, you know, some of the guys you mentioned, like Flagler, obviously that's someone we know. Thamba, just because he has like a seven foot four wingspan, all the length in the world. Same with his other front court mate, Chamwa Chachua, like another seven foot long wingspan type of guy to Kinjo, the point guard that makes it run. LJ Cryer obviously is their top scorer, but Kendall Brown is really killing it. And same goes for Meyer, who is shooting the ball well for them. There's just, there's a lot to, to handle. And obviously there's a lot of guys to highlight, rightfully so. This Baylor team is still very much stacked and still very talented. Yeah, they don't have Davian Mitchell. Yeah, they don't have uh, Jared Butler and those other guys from last year who were key catalysts, but they have l- plenty others who clearly are ready to step up and still keep the ship rolling, still keep that team moving. I mean, with this Villanova squad, again, you know, they have what it takes to, you know, break down that Baylor defense. And, but if there's any point of concern, if you're Villanova, it's gotta be, you know, trying to get contributions outside of the starting five. They obviously got Caleb Daniels has been a very impressive six man, but you know, is there anyone off the bench that you're kind of looking at like, okay, you know, we're going to need a few more minutes out of this guy and you know, a lot more, not, not uh, say a lot more, but just enough of an improvement in terms of contributions where it'll give the rest of the guys a boost to improve their play and, you know, inch them closer to potentially pulling a big upset. Yeah, it's funny. That's been a very hot topic at VU Hoops and with Villanova fans in general. Like, can we get some more bench depth in here? Can we get some of the younger guys in there to help contribute? 
Unfortunately, I know you highlighted Caleb Daniels. He's probably the main and only guy so far that's proven off the bench that can contribute. So far, Caleb Daniels has been playing pretty well in these recent four games after a slowish start to the season. And then last year, I'm sure he's going to want to get back at Baylor because he did not have a great Sweet 16 game. Granted, it came out later that he was still dealing with COVID-19 complications, but a lot. I think he had something like six turnovers against the Bears last year, built a brick house on the court in the Sweet 16 matchup. He's going to want to redeem himself a little bit, so definitely keep an eye on him. But if you can't, if you had to look at someone else, it's got to be Chris Archidiacono, the younger Archidiacono. He's got to come up big, provide some key minutes off the bench. Baylor is going to come at you swarming from all angles. He's going to have to withstand the pressure, help take care of the ball, and also run the point or run the floor when a guy like Gillespie or Moore need a break. Uh, so another guy, you know, Demir Cosby Roundtree, a guy that we had basically written off and like, okay, I don't think we're going to see this guy this year at all. But the fact that we're getting him now, I mean, granted, I like you shouldn't expect him to score, but the experience of being one of those few guys left from the 2018 national championship team. And I, and he grabbed six rebounds against SU on Tuesday night. You know, do you think, you know, his presence on the glass, do you think that, you know, will provide a boost and, and just emotionally as well, considering obviously, like I mentioned, he wasn't even supposed to play this year. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. His story is honestly remarkable. Um, every, he's become a fan favorite just because of what he's gone through over the last couple of years with recurring knee injuries or leg injuries, I should say. And yeah, I think everybody wrote him off last year. Even Villanova did at one point. They took him off the active roster. They, they said, okay, unfortunately, this is the end of his career. Then all of a sudden, we got a little surprise re-entry against some big five teams. And then against Syracuse, he stepped up, and in the eight or a few minutes that he had, he really relished in them. Like you mentioned, he had those six boards. So his presence on the court will definitely be key. Baylor's got a lot of length. I don't know how much time he's going to have against them or how much time Jay will give against them, but there's no doubt. If he can provide those key minutes like that, that's a huge boost. I mean, just off the court in the locker room, he's a great leader to the team. He's been a great mentor. But it's one thing when you're a great mentor and you're able to actually add those key minutes or contribute those key plays on the court that will just even fire up your team even more. So last year, Villanova went into Austin and beat a very good Texas squad. And so far, you know, they won their first two games in the battle, which include an upset over then number one Kansas back in December of 2019 at Wells Fargo, um, you know, I don't want to equate it to like lightning striking twice in terms of, you know, getting a road win at Texas and then going back to the Lone Star State and getting a win against an even better Big 12 school from the state of Texas in the form of the Baylor Bears. And the Farrell Center is going to be rocking. Uh, but uh, I mean, ultimately, I mean, I know I have my inclinations, but, you know, the Baylor's going to be the favorite. Do you think Baylor wins this game? And, you know, what are you thinking in terms of, you know, is it going to be a nail biter? Is it going to be like a two to three ish possession? You know, what are you thinking in terms of, uh, you know, how closely contested this game might be? It's funny after that Syracuse game and just the way that Nova was able to win, even when it wasn't pretty, even when it was very ugly, even when the threes weren't falling, I felt very, very optimistic. But then you start to read a little bit more about this Baylor team and you see their length and you see the numbers and you see some of those talented guards that they still have who are going to make a name for themselves. You, Everyone will know their names by the end of this season. And then you start to get a little concerned. 
I think it's going to be a nail biter. Unfortunately, I'm sure for Nova and Nova fans, you would wish that third time's the charm. Came up short against UCLA. You came up short against Purdue. Now, can we get this top 10 win? But then also, Baylor's beaten Nova in each of the last two years. Can we get them the third time around? Unfortunately, I think that Nova will lose a close one. I think it will be a nail biter until the Baylor Bears finally pull away towards the end. Yeah, so I'm going to go with Baylor too, but I really think, you know, like it was like closer to like, you know, like I think it was like 11 or 12, I believe the margin of victory was for Baylor in the Sweet 16. I think it's going to be closer than that. I think it might be like half of that. Like that four to six range seems fair. So, I mean, Baylor will win, but again, Villanova is going to have something to say about that. You know, Jay Wright is going to have his team mentally and physically prepared to go into this environment. You know, he didn't schedule these games. Granted, you know, uh, the Big East Big 12 battle, you know, the conferences set that up, but, you know, he didn't schedule all those other tough games for nothing. So he, he, he knew what he was doing and, you know, it's games like this is going to, you know, prepare him for, you know, making a run at yet another conference title. But, but again, ba- you know, Baylor's defending national chance for a reason. They'll prove it. But again, Villanova is going to have some, something to say about that. They're going to put up a fight, but in the end, Baylor will eke it out. But, you know, obviously we're all itching to see how it's going to turn out. I mean, we can yeah. talk about it as, as much as we want, but again, you know, it's going to be three o'clock on ABC on, on Sunday afternoon. And um, Eugene, great preview. Um, can't wait to see what happens in this game. Hopefully a lot of our expertise will somewhat come to fruition. Um, you know, we may get proven wrong because that's just basketball and, you know, things can happen. It's been on a the crazy line. week. It's been an insane week. So you never know, really. Oh, yeah. But Eugene, you know, about time I got you back on the igloo um, and one on one rather than just as, as a uh, panelist on the roundtable. So, again, thanks for coming on again. Make sure to check him out on VUHoops.com and his content. there. always good stuff. And again, you know, th- again, thank you for coming on. And, you know, we're looking forward to a great game on Sunday. Definitely looking forward to it. Tim, thank you again for having me on. My, the rest of my weekend picks is a loaded slate. They're coming up right after this. Welcome back inside the Igloo. Big shout out again to Eugene Repay. A great preview of another marquee matchup for Villanova as, you know, they've already played UCLA, who's currently fourth in the country, which was on the road. They played Purdue, who was number one in the country coming into this week. They won't be anymore, obviously, coming off that upset loss at the Horn at Rutgers, I mean, most likely they'll still be top five, top ten in the next poll coming out on Monday. But Villanova has played an extremely difficult non-conference schedule, and this will be the third game in a real gauntlet. And again, this is on the road. None of these games have been on their home court. And for Villanova to play that, without the luxury of having home court advantage in any of those games, you know, that's something to respect and something to obviously keep in mind, you know, come Selection Sunday if they really are pushing towards that one seed. Only if that. But obviously, you heard my pick. I'm going to go with Baylor winning a close one in Waco Sunday. But here is the rest of my weekend picks. So, Friday night, DePaul playing their first road game of the year, visiting Louisville at the KFC Yum Center. The Cardinals are coming in at 6-2. Their only defeats coming 
at Michigan State and in a shocker at home against Furman. You know, DePaul has played really well so far, but I think in their first true road game of the year, I think they're going to look a little more like a fish out of water. And I think the safe pick is Louisville, and I am going to go with the Cardinals, although I really think DePaul is going to keep this close. And it will be a single-digit game in my mind. So, loaded slate Saturday. And let's just start first and foremost. Noon on Fox... SU Georgetown, Georgetown coming off that offensive explosion against UMBC, Syracuse coming off a game in which they sucked, quite frankly, against Villanova, and they're going to need Buddy Bayheim to get that three-point stroke back, because he didn't have it in the garden on Tuesday. So something worth noting, the home team has now won three consecutive meetings, And since the, you know, the revitalization of the rivalry, it's been an even 3-3. With Georgetown winning 2 of 3 at Capital One Arena and Syracuse winning 2 of 3 at the Carrier Dome. So, the last team to win back-to-back meetings at in this series was Syracuse winning back-to-back in in December of 2017 and December of 2018 against the Hoyas. In close games, mind you. I think with fans back in the building, I think it'll give Georgetown a bit of a boost. But my gut feeling, and again, I'm not trying to be biased because I know I grew, I grew up going to Cuse games and all that. But... My gut feeling is that Syracuse is going to bounce back and beat Georgetown in a tight one, but I know deep down Syracuse is very susceptible to losing games like this. You know, they lost at home to Colgate. They lost to VCU. But yet they somehow won at Florida State last weekend. So make make that make sense. And they beat Indiana at home to hand them their first loss. I mean, I think they pick and choose their battles. They get up for games like this. Although against Villanova, you know, they they got up for it early on. You know, they were up three at the half, but they fell flat. I mean, I'm going to go with Syracuse, but again, Georgetown could very well win this game. Do I feel great about the pick, though? Probably not, no. But, again, I gotta play it safe. Actually, you know what? Screw it. I'm picking Georgetown here. I know this. it's not, again, not the sexiest of picks, but, you know, I, I think it's the fact that they're playing this game at Capital One Arena with fans in the building. Uh, this fan base is going to be fired up and ready And you know what? I think that's going to give enough of a boost. And Syracuse, like I said, they're susceptible to losing games like this. And, you know, when they get down on themselves, they get really down. And I can't assume how down they are after losing to Nova by 14 in the Garden, despite Villanova shooting as badly as they did. So, 
on the spot change, I'm, I'm going to go with Georgetown. Now, Creighton taking on 24th-ranked BYU in South Dakota at the Pentagon. No, not that Pentagon. BYU is 8-1. Their only loss coming at Utah Valley a little over a week ago. You know, Creighton's fully rested, you know, coming off a full week off since that loss to Iowa State. I don't know. I, I'm just going to stick with BYU beating Creighton. Creighton will keep it close, but I think BYU is just too much. So this goes without saying. Providence should crush Central Connecticut at the dunk. 2.30 on Fox. Marquette hosting fourth-ranked UCLA. Marquette's last non-conference game before Biggie's play starts for them next weekend. Uh, you know, UCLA, I just think they're too good. And I'm I'm just going to stick with my gut going with UCLA. But I think Marquette stays in it all game, but I think UCLA wins it by single digits, though. Now, over on ESPN 2, 3, 3.30, never forget Tribute Classic. You know, the women's team for UConn plays right before them against UCLA, but then the men's Huskies rank 15th in the country. They'll take on St. Bonaventure in the second game. Bonnie's coming in at 8-1. Most likely will be without Kyle Lofton. And we all know UConn is going to be without Martin and Sonogo. But given that they still managed to fight hard and have a legitimate shot at winning in Morgantown against West Virginia, I just think that gives UConn a slight edge in this game. Don't get me wrong. St. John's has St. Bonaventure, excuse me, has some ballers on their team. I mean, we talk about Osanui or, or Osani, I should say, being one of those guys. I mean, Attaway, of course. I just think UConn just has a little too much. And, you know, UConn fans travel well. And they'll definitely pack the Prudential Center for this game. And I got UConn winning. Butler hosting Eastern Illinois. I, I don't think that should be a problem. Butler w- should win that game big. Then we got the Crosstown Shootout. Xavier, Cincinnati. I didn't even touch on that one. I mean, we talked about Rutgers Seat Hall being an in-state rivalry game. But we're talking an inner city rivalry game. Cincinnati Xavier. Xavier's won three in a row against the Bearcats. You know what? Make it four. Cincinnati, yeah, I know they've been good. However, their two losses so far came against Arkansas in Kansas City. And then they lost at home to Monmouth a couple weeks ago. Xavier, with the way they're playing, this team looks legit. You know, I'm going to take Xavier winning. And you know what? I think they're going to win by double digits. So, you know, make it that what you will. Anyway, Sunday, noon on FS1. I mean, St. John's hosting Colgate. Again, Colgate has a losing record, but they do have that big win at Syracuse back in November. 
And they nearly beat NC State and Pitt, although they came short, came up short in both of those games. I just don't see St. John's losing a game like this, so give me the Red Storm beating Colgate. I already went over Villanova-Baylor. I think Baylor wins a tight one. And then to round it all out, a game that is near and dear to my heart, 23rd-ranked Seton Hall hosting Rutgers, who, by the way, is coming off a half-court buzzer-beating upset of top-ranked Purdue, which is their first rank over a number one ranked team in program history. And that got them back over 500 at five and four. So Rutgers, they're going to be feeling pretty good about themselves. But should you feel good about it? No. Because look at what they've done so far this year. They barely beat Lehigh. They beat Merrimack after scoring only 16 points in the first half. They were down at halftime against NGIT, and they were down at halftime against Merrimack and Lehigh, too. They lost at DePaul. They lost at home to Lafayette, who was winless at the time. They lost at UMass in a game in which they led by double digits at the half, and UMass beat the buzzer to win it. And Rutgers led the whole damn game, pretty much. The only time UMass led, well, was in the final minute, and then at the buzzer was their biggest lead at two. I know they beat Clemson. It's Trust me, it's not an amazing win. They got whacked by Illinois, and then they just beat Purdue at the buzzer, the number one team in the country. The home team has won each of the last four meetings between these teams, the last time they did meet, Rutgers pounded Seton Hall 68-48 at the venue now known as Jersey Mike's Arena. And in that game, they were already without Mamu with a broken wrist. And then Miles Powell early in that game suffered a nasty concussion, which you've heard about in interviews with Quincy McKnight and Shavar Reynolds. And, you know... Naturally, when you come off beating the number one team in the country, yeah, you're, you're going to think you're hot shit. I know. Anyone would. It's natural, and I'm not blaming Rutgers fans for thinking that at all. But for Seton Hall, them winning from a psychological standpoint is the best thing that you could ask for. Because if they had lost Rutgers... Rutgers would have been coming in, you know, a, a little more on edge and a little more feisty and playing with more of a chip on their shoulder. And that could open the door for Seton Hall being a little more complacent. But sure, Seton Hall has looked complacent at times, you know, letting teams like Bethune-Cookman hang around, even a team like Wagner, and for a small stretch, Nyack College in their most recent games. And, and let me just debunk this right now. Listen, Rutgers fans have been talking all crazy about Seton Hall ducked Rutgers. Like, no. If there was any substantial evidence to prove that, don't you think it would be known by now? I'm just saying. And again, I'm not trying to like, you know really, you know, demonize Rutgers fans and all that. But I'm like, if you're going to make that kind of argument, at least have some evidence to support it instead of just saying, oh, oh they ducked him. Like, I mean, let's be real. 
Seen all knows they they very well could have beaten Rutgers last year. Very well could have. Fans or no fans at Prudential Center, it didn't matter. It's not like Seton Hall had no shot at beating Rutgers last year, and that was a pretty good Rutgers team. I'm not going to deny that. But to just automatically shoot down the Seton Hall wasn't going to stand a shot in that game, and that's why Seton Hall ducked him? Stop. It's just not rooted in fact. It's more rooted in conspiracy than it is on logic. But, but again, that's the end of my rant. But to the matter of this game, most likely Geo Baker, who missed Thursday's game against Purdue due to the flu, I'm assuming he'll be back in time. But the most important thing if you're Seton Hall, you got to lock down Ron Harper Jr. It's either that or you just let, let him do whatever he wants and worry about the rest of the team killing you. Because... At the end of the day, I feel like Ron Harper Jr. is going to get his. It's just a matter of everyone else backing him up. And if you're a Rutgers fan, I wouldn't feel so good in trusting that. I know you want to trust Ron Harper Jr. and I don't blame you. I would too. But would you trust the other guys playing behind him? I wouldn't lean on him. And what I'm really worried about... And you know what? If you're Miles Kale, who's been known to be really good at locking down you know, the, the top perimeter players on any given team, more of the guys who are you know playing the shooting guard, small forward position, like Ron Harper Jr. does, I'm assuming Kale's going to get that defensive assignment, and he's going to be more than up to the task. And trust me, I think seeing all fans... And the players, you know, they're going to remember that 68-40 loss from 68-48 loss from 2019. They're going to remember that well. And if I'm Kevin Willard, I'm going to show the tape of the first 10 minutes of that game to show how Rutgers run his te- ran his team out of the building just in the first 10 minutes and embarrassed them in that ball game. I know Seton fans are going to be loud and proud in that game. No, Rutgers fans are going to want to assert their presence there too. But who's going to assert their presence more on the court? It's going to be Seton Hall. Rutgers will stay in it for, for a stretch. But in the end, Seton Hall will reclaim bragging rights in the state of New Jersey with a steady win. I say they win this, I mean, again, I... You know, on the low end, could it be a one-possession game? Absolutely. I, the 6-9 to nine point range looks decent, but, you know, if you're Seton Hall, you know, you're going to hear all this talk about, like, oh, you know, y'all ducked Rutgers. Like, they've probably been hearing that for a year now. If I was on that team, it, it would get under my skin, too. And it gets under my skin a little bit as... And I'll admit, like, I'm not just going to say... I, I try to be unbiased, but obviously I have a rooting interest in seeing all because I went there. You know, that getting under my skin too. And you know what? For all that talk, and for the Rutgers fans who will make that trip to Newark for this game, you know what? If I'm Seton Hall, no mercy. If you get a sizable lead, run that bitch up. Because of all that talk... Of, you know, of Seton Hall ducking this team. Ducking this Rutgers team. 
Throw it back right in their face and send a message. Embarrass them. Humiliate them. And that's all I'm going to say on that. I'm hoping they do, but if they don't, either way, just win the damn game. If you if for in, in terms of my rooting interest for Seton Hall, I'm I'm just going to tell just, just win the damn game. That's all I want at the end of the day. But would I love for them to humiliate Rutgers? You bet your ass I would, of course. And if you talk to any Seton Hall fan who wouldn't, especially given all that back talk, obviously something to think about. But anyways, that's going to do it for this episode of the Igloo. Uh, coming up tomorrow before, you know, before noon comes along, which is when all the action on the women's side starts on Saturday. Um, I'm going to have my weekend preview for the women's side of Big East Hoops, as well as a recap of, you know, everything that happened during the week, which included UConn's first loss to a non-ranked opponent in nearly 10 years. I'm going to cover that and, of course, look ahead to the weekend ahead on the next episode of the Igloo coming out sometime tomorrow morning. Before noon, for sure. So, until then, this is Timmy I signing off from the Igloo. Thank you again for tuning in. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Thank you again to Eugene Repay for joining me for the Villanova Baylor preview. Hope you enjoyed that in this entire episode. And as always, I will catch y'all next time.